This is the podcast for Woodland Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. We are maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. We hope you enjoy the message, and if you'd like to learn more about our church, look us up at woodlandpres.org. Thanks so much. May the Lord bless you. Palm Sunday is just a great time to celebrate when Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem and the people there acknowledge him as king. It's a day of celebration. It's a day of hope. Uh, they're laying down the palms, and we, we laid down some palms uh, this morning. Thank you to our children and our choir uh, just for reminding us of what it might have looked like uh, in that moment. And this is the beginning of, of the week the church calls Holy Week. It's a celebration uh, of Jesus's journey to the cross and uh, his ultimate, culminating in the celebration of the resurrection. Uh, when Jesus rises from the dead that we'll, we'll, we'll rejoice in on Sunday. And there are these different steps that we take to consider that, uh, the tenebrae service, the prayer service on Good Friday, uh, and our uh, gathering on Sunday. But this, this week marks this time when we consider what was going on with Jesus as he rode in on uh, the donkey with the shouts of Hosanna. Hosanna means save us. And uh, what was going on there. So I want to read to you uh, a passage of scripture. It's very familiar, but we're going to focus not so much on the actual journey into Jerusalem, but what happened after Jesus came into Jerusalem on that day. I've never preached about this component of Palm Sunday, and so I'm excited about it this morning. We're going to be looking at uh, a passage from Matthew chapter 21. If you're able, uh, please stand for the reading of God's word. Verse 7 from Matthew uh, chapter 21. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him, that followed him, were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer but you have made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. The word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Lord our God, we thank you for your holy word that is the true story of what actually happened about Jesus. I pray, Lord, that not only would we know the story is real, but that it would also be relevant it would make a difference in our lives as we encounter you through your word, that it would change us and shape us and form us to be more like Jesus. 
after having spent time with him. Give us insight to hear what you have to say. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, The people who lived on the island of Papua for thousands of years had done so without any significant incident. And so few anticipated what was going to happen on January 21st, 1951. On that day, what began, and a few days earlier, as simply some vapor columns on some small landslides, turned on the 21st to a massive volcanic eruption, uh, a four on the scale of eight on the volcanic uh, scale. It was equal to the power of Mount Vesuvius and Mount St. Helens. You may uh, remember, if you're old enough, what happened on Mount St. Helens. The whole side of the mountain was, was blown off. It was a, a, a reality that not even the legends had carried forth for the local people. No one was anticipating this. There were uh, just grass and tree-covered hillsides. Well, have you ever known a, a person who was like that volcano? Totally peaceful and chilled all the time, and yet then at one moment explodes in anger like a volcano. You know, we normally think of Jesus as this really mild-mannered person who is kind and who is, who is loving. He, he's gentle and lowly of heart. He's exceedingly long-suffering. He is ultimately patient. He loves the little children. He gathers to himself those who are sick and those who are infirm, those who need help. He loves the gentle widow. But he's also an angry person. Angry in the right way. Not angry out of control, caught up in a rage, but rather one who is livid at the injustice of the unholiness that is corrupting his father's house. Jesus speaks with harsh and pointed judgment over those who are sinning against God and sinning against God's people. Listen to what he says. It is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. But you have made it a den of robbers. We think about a den, right? That's a a cave that is dark where you go to retreat. A bear hibernates in the den because it's, it's, uh, it's set apart in a way. And robbers would gather into a den, right? They would go and make raids into a city and they would steal and plunder. And then they would retreat back into their den to count their spoils. So Jesus is saying, my father's house, which is to be a house of prayer, you have made it into a den of robbers. Pretty strong words. You who have gathered in this holy place where the presence of God is to be dwelling, you gathered in this place of worship and you've made my house a den of robbers. Strong words from a gentle and lowly man. Man who exudes kindness and mercy and grace comes forth and he's tipping over the tables. He's passionately, I imagine him yelling out with fury in his eyes. Why is it that Jesus is so upset? Why does he go from a gentle hillside to a volcano erupting with power? He sees that God's law has been violated. 
And when God's law is violated, it grieves the very heart of God. Jesus is upset because what's going on makes it impossible for the people that God is inviting into his presence to actually worship in the way that he intends. You see, the Jewish law required a temple tax. It was a half shekel. When Jews and visitors from other nations came to offer a sacrifice to the Lord, they would pay this tax. But sometimes they would come with coins from their own land. And these foreign coins, especially if it had the likeness of a pagan emperor, would not be accepted into the temple. And because many people came to worship, there were so many, they would have people who were money changers. And they would exchange the foreign coins for Jewish money. But they did so at an exorbitant profit. And they did it on the temple ground, in the place where the people were highly motivated to worship. Imagine you've traveled for days or weeks to come at a special time, and here it is, the Passover. It is a celebration like no other. And you've saved up your money, and you've traveled with your family to go. This is a, maybe a once-in-a-lifetime experience. And you've gone, and, and there you've got to, to pay the tax. And you understand that the tax is there. And you're excited and zealous to lay down your offering. And yet the people who are there are robbing you. It's like going to the Grizzlies game when you're really hungry. You get to the game, you're excited, rank number two. We're going to the championship, baby. If we can win the West, we're going to kill anybody in the East. So let's go and root these guys on, right? Get there. But I didn't eat dinner before I went. I need to buy some food at the Grizzlies game. And you walk up to the counter and you say, I'll have a Coke and a hot dog. And they say, $50, please. (laughs) And so then you rip the tables up and you change the money changes. And you say, you've turned this into a den of robbers. You know, if you go to the Masters, the Masters, you can get a cheese sandwich for $1.50. That's how they ought to do the Grizzlies games. What's with the prices? But it's that feeling of, I'm getting ripped off here. Because in my zeal to root on my Grizz, we're excited, things are going, I believe. I got to pay 50 bucks for a hot dog. It's not right. But you know going into it, that's why you got to have a snack before you go. And if you take kids with you, Bring some peanut butter and jelly sandwiches in your pocket. It's ridiculous. That's the feeling, but it's even worse for these worshipers because here they come and they're excited and they're zealous. This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity and they're just getting gouged. And Jesus is angry because he knows it's more than a $50 hot dog. He knows that this is hindering the people from worshiping and expressing their faith in genuine joy and honest worship. It's preventing people from encountering God. And it makes Jesus angry. You see, the money changers were exploiting the religious passion of the visitors and taking advantage of them. The poor who had come in this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. There were others there that sold sacrificial animals because you had to present an animal for a sacrifice. But they would do so at a higher cost than normal. They might even examine your animal and say that you were going to present for worship and they say I'm sorry but that animal doesn't meet the standards but I have one right here that does at another exorbitant price 
So this makes it difficult, especially for the poor, to participate in worship. And you know this. You've sat in the back row at the Grizzlies game. It stinks way back there. Sometimes your friend with the great tickets invites you to come sit down front, and you're like, I can never go back to the back up there again. Because it costs a lot of money, doesn't it? But this feeling of how can I embrace and worship God in the way that I know that he wants to? Does he, does he want only the rich people to be able to gather for worship? No. He wants everybody to come into the house and to celebrate, especially those who are in need. The poor financially, the poor in spirit. Those are the people that Jesus wants to embrace and to love. And yet this den of robbers has made it a criminal exercise. They were just taking advantage of their zealousness. And whenever passion and zeal are found, there are those who will take advantage of that zeal and try to make a profit of it. You know, try to make a profit of it. See, they've changed the house of prayer, which should be a place of petition, a place of confession, a place of renewal, of reconciliation, of communion, of adoration, of supplication, a place of welcome for all people. They've made it a den of robbers. But what about today? That was then, this is now. How does this apply to us? Well, we've seen the modern versions of the money changers flood the airways, promising if you just send in your donation, if you send in your hard-earned money, you'll get blessings, you'll get favor from God, you'll get the healing that you need. For simple, suggested donation, I'll pray for you. I'll promise you that God will heal you. If you send in your donation, you can do it right now by calling the number on your screen. Just text or send the money in right now. And just like the first century money changers, the practices of the modern religious price gougers only aid the worshipers who have enough cash to purchase their wares. And what makes it worse is that the leaders of the faith in that day, the scribes and the Pharisees, the people who were supposed to be protecting the poor and caring for them and allowing them, inviting them, encouraging them to come into the place of worship, they didn't even stand up and say, hey, this is wrong, guys. It's only when Jesus comes to town that anything is done about it. What does it say about how they look on? Because the blind and the lame, they see Jesus, and they come in and they say, we need the healing. And Jesus, what does he do? He does provide the healing. But what do the religious leaders do? How is their posture? It says they are indignant. Indignant. I had to look it up. Indignant. I have a sense of what it means, but I went to the dictionary and I looked it up. It says it's a feeling or showing annoyance at what is perceived as unfair treatment. The scribes and the Pharisees were indignant because they thought what was going on was unfair. The people who are called to lead the people in worship are annoyed that Jesus would allow these other kinds of folks in. Why is he spending time with them? Why would he heal them? Why would he make a way and make a plan for those people to come and gather into worship when we're here? We've done all the study. We got our duds on. We look good. Why would Jesus spend time with them? They're annoyed. And not only that, they're annoyed at the attention that Jesus is getting. Hosanna, son of David? Why is he the one getting all the fanfare? Why is this peasant ragamuffin being honored when we're the ones who should be highly esteemed? 
You see, instead of understanding that they were witnessing the fulfillment of the ancient prophecies, they were annoyed that they weren't getting attention. Who's talking to me? Who comes over and asks how I'm doing? Who's wondering about me? That's what they were thinking about. And again, wherever passion and zeal are found, there'll be those to seek profit. Those who seek profit over the airways for the suggested donation, this idea of name it, claim it, and if you want it, just buy my book and you can have it. I mean, are you still getting emails from Nigerian princes saying, just send me $1,000 in Jesus' name, I'll kindly send you $10 million. If you are, please, please, please don't respond. And these are the most blatant hucksters in our world, right? But isn't there a temptation for us? A temptation for us, instead of seeing the, the, the community of faith as a house of prayer for all nations, for all people, rather to be just a place for our peace and our comfort. Do I like it? Is it going well for me when I gather for worship? Do I like it? Do I see the house of the Lord as a prayer station, a place of equipping for those who are engaged in the battle to reach the lost and the least? Or do I see it as a place where I just get together with my friends? And we sing the songs that I like, and we have a good old time, and then we go out to lunch and have a pimento cheese sandwich for $1.50. Instead of a place where I use my resources uh, to, to build up and encourage others to follow Christ and to make him known and to repair those who come into this place who are broken and who are struggling, I see it as a place that we need to build bigger and bigger buildings and establish our brand. Instead of an investment making in disciples who are going to establish and build the kingdom. I see it as a place for me to just get what I need and go on about the week. Yes, we want to gather in a place that is clean and fresh and bright, where we understand the language that is being spoken and the songs that are being sung. But we also want to be equipped and empowered to know that God loves us in such a way that we're also being sent out into the world and that we can make a difference in this city? Are we really rallying around the idea that this is a place of prayer? Or have we become a den of robbers in a way, focusing on our needs, annoyed that it doesn't go the way we want? You see, if Jesus rode into town today into Memphis and pulled up to 5217 Park Avenue on a donkey, I'm sure that would cause a stir. But when he walked into this community of faith, would he see it as a house of prayer or a den of robbers? Would he see it as a house of prayer? Maybe yes, and maybe no. I know this year, as a focus for our church, is that we're wanting to grow in our capacity for prayer. We're focusing on our, uh, our value in our church that is earnest prayer, that kind of prayer that, that, that moves the needle. Not only does it grow our intimacy and connection with God to know how much he loves us and cares for us and has set us free from sin and death, but it's also that kind of frontline intercession prayer where we see the kingdom of God advancing into the darkest places of the world, into those nations and continents where the church does not exist. We want to see the church happen and also into those relationships and challenges that our own city faces where when our friend Don Gilbert, who came and spoke, shared with us that there are people that live down the street that don't really have enough food to get through the week, much less the next two. 
those places where there's great need and there's hurt and there's pain. And we lament the murder rate of our city, but are we actively, earnestly praying that God would bring peace and justice into our city? That we would be empowered and equipped to be able to build relationships into those communities where there's greatest struggle. Would Jesus see this as a house of prayer? We, we know prayer is a good thing. We know it's a biblical thing. And yet each one of us in some ways struggles with praying, right? I know for me, it's, well, I can just get a whole lot more done if I don't spend that time praying. And then I reveal my own selfishness about my time or my own belief that what I do is more important than what God can actually do. And so for me, a focus on earnest prayer is an effort for us all to become a praying congregation where we would go before the Lord and, and build that intimacy and then also engage in intercession and say, God, we need you more than ever right now to do something in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our city, in the world. Isn't there a time when we feel more helpless to know there's an army advances against the people who simply want to be free, that what can we do from here? We can pray. We can pray. And so we do in some ways struggle with the idea that are we a house of prayer or are we a den of robbers? Let us, by grace, move into prayer so that God will be glorified in us. You see, Jesus knows that the hearts of those who are annoyed by not getting what they want, he knows the hearts then, he knows our hearts. He knows there's this tendency and this temptation for us to, to just kind of be concerned with what we're getting out of it. That's a reality for all of us, and he, Jesus knows that. And so what does he say? Verse 15, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. When the children say Hosanna, when you look around and the children are bringing the palms in and they're praising God. And yet here in my heart, I can go, oh, maybe we shouldn't have done that song that way. Maybe we should have had more of this or more of that. Or man, check myself. And I say, God, have I been indignant in your house today and they said to him verse 16 do you hear what these are saying Jesus are you listening to what these children are saying to you and Jesus said yes and he quotes the old testament to them have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise Jesus is referring here to psalm 8 that begins like this O lord our lord how majestic is your name in all the earth it's a glorious depiction of the, of the majesty and the beauty of God. And then it switches to this, verse 2. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes. To still the enemy and the avenger. That God is glorious in the heavens and the way he proclaims that is out of the mouths of babies and infants. If you ever complain about a child being too loud in the sanctuary, just believe that that child is praising God with you. Here come the children. Here come the children to Jesus, praising his name, seeing something that the adults couldn't even see. Why would Jesus quote a psalm that says, out of the mouths of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger? Well, he's doing a couple things, I think. Number one, the children's hosannas are being directed to the son of David, the Messiah. 
Jesus is receiving that. And so what he's doing is publicly claiming and receiving this worship and this adoration because he is the son of God. He knows what's going to happen through the rest of the week. He's not only justifying or acknowledging his Messiahship, but he's, he's justifying the praise of the children by applying a passage of Scripture that could only be applied to God. Jesus is essentially saying, I am God and I receive this praise. That's a pretty big deal, and it makes them even more angry. And it's what moves them to want to kill him. But he's also revealing that the humble often perceive spiritual truths more readily than the sophisticated. It's not the religious leaders. It's not the adults that supposedly have been studying their Bibles, but rather the children who see him and praise him for who he is. The children carry on the shouts of those who've welcomed Jesus into the city, lacking any inhibitions, any skepticism. They, they cry out, Hosanna. The glory of the Lord is revealed in the praises of children. A couple weeks ago in the sanctuary, a little boy was sitting in the back. And when a man came by in a white robe, the little boy said, Is that God? No, it's Gene. <laughs> but the little boy was looking for God. He was asking, Is that God? Because something in him sensed that this is where God is, that the presence of God is in this room. Now, we know that the presence of God is everywhere, but there's something about being together as the people of God that brings out, that calls upon the name of the Lord, asking him to be present. And that little boy was looking for God. Another little boy wanted to sit down with me on a pew and open up the hymnal and read through the songs. A little girl last week shouts, hallelujah, and she's invited to give praise. Some children sing about God, and it moves us because their faith is real. It's joyful. It hasn't been worn down by the world and the cynicism and the burden and the struggle and the hurt that we've all experienced. In Sunday school, true story, a little boy responds to the question, was Jesus a friend to everyone? Yes, except for Satan. When you come to church, you think about deep things. You begin to ask yourself, who is God and what does he mean? What is he doing in my life? You see, God is working in different ways. And sometimes the adults in the room are too busy to understand. We're too busy thinking about what's next or what we've got to do instead of just encountering Jesus for who he is. And through their praise... The den of robbers, the den of criminals becomes a house of prayer. So how do we gain this childlike faith again? How can we see God at work in wonderful, powerful, and glorious ways with the innocence of a child? One way that happens is through prayer. Quite simply, the church that doesn't learn to pray fervently and corporately will never become the church that God intends. It will never be the place where restoration and reconciliation and renewal really take place. We may be able to gather a crowd of people with attractive programming and marketing techniques and delicious hamburgers and hot dogs that will be served on Saturday between 11 and 1. But that doesn't mean that we embody the gospel simply because we have good food. One of the ways that we celebrate God's goodness is to make good food for people. 
But we've got to do something more than just the glamorous and the flashy. Prayer is central to the mission and function of the church because our mission is God's mission. It's our great temptation to rely on our own resources, our own ingenuity, our own creativity, and to plan more than we pray. You see, when we see the purpose of the church as to be on mission for God, truly being a house of prayer for all nations, we'll understand that we're part of God's mission. John Calvin used the image of a shovel to describe prayer, which digs up and unearths the hidden and buried treasures pointed out by the gospel. All facets and benefits of Christ's salvation are given to us and revealed to us by the Spirit as we dig them up in prayer. Uh, The Heidelberg Catechism says that prayer is the most important part of the thankfulness that God requires of us and then makes the astounding statement that God gives his grace and Holy Spirit only to those who pray continually and groan inwardly, asking God for these gifts and thanking him for them. Jesus didn't come to Jerusalem for a show. He came to demonstrate that his earthly rule was about to begin. His rule by going to the cross and rising again from the dead. His reign as king. And one of the first things he needed to do was to clean house. Clean out the apathy. Clean out the the timidity. Clean out the sin. Clean out the struggle. And bring in a fresh wind of prayer. And so I invite you this week to join us on Friday, if you can, for a time of prayer. I invite you to join us in our Sunday morning conversation about how we grow in prayer. I invite you to join us as a congregation to reflect and read on prayer and to make it a practice in your life. And if you don't pray on a regular basis, don't say, hey, I'm going to do, do one hour prayer every day because you'll be discouraged on day three. But to say, where is the time in my life where I set aside and I just say, Lord, help me to understand more of who you are. Just take some amount of time. If it's five minutes, make it six. If it's 15 minutes, make it 20. And say, God, please reveal yourself to me. And let's begin to become a house of prayer in increasing measure because we want to see God work in powerful and immediate ways. But see, what's fascinating to me about the temple is this, is that that Jesus' intention was never to say, hey, keep coming to the temple, because he likely knew that some years later the temple would be destroyed. And see, the good news is is that those who know Christ are, in in a way, part of that temple. Because the intention for God was not just to gather his people, but it was to scatter his people, to send them out in all those places. And you know, when you are willing to take a risk for Jesus, you need to be praying Right? There's that person that you work with that you're just not sure, how do I speak to this person in a loving way to talk to them about my faith? Not to beat them over the head with it, but to say, you know, hey, um, I know that you've been struggling. Here's something that meant a lot to me is my faith. Would there be a way that maybe I could pray for you? But to, to do that, to take that risk, means a lot of prayer comes behind it. To say, Lord, how would I do that? How do I go about that? For us to say, let's, gonna, let's deliver some food into a neighborhood that we don't belong to. It's not our neighborhood. It's our city, but it's not our neighborhood. That takes prayer, that God would open the doors and open the hearts of the people that we share with. These things need and require prayer, and it's not designed just for us to happen in here, as important as it is. 
It's designed to happen everywhere we go. We're constantly praying and thinking that God is going to do something. He at any moment might do something. Because you see, the people who lived in, in, on the island of Papua, there's a sense in which they, they could have known because there's that whole area around the Pacific Ocean they call the Ring of Fire. And it's that area where there are volcanoes that are constantly active. And I say constantly, I mean every thousand years. But you know, if you live near a volcano, there's a chance that a volcano is going to erupt. And here's the thing, friends. If you live with Jesus, there's a chance that Jesus is going to erupt in your life. And it might do some damage on things the way they are. It might upset the apple cart in your life. And you know what? Praise God for that. Because some of us, including me, need our apple carts upset. We need a reorientation about what it means to really live for and to follow Jesus. And what a blessing that that is, that God wouldn't leave me the way I am, but he wants to change me for his sake. What an amazing thing, but be careful. If you spend time reading the word, if you spend time in prayer, and you spend time in Jesus, something might happen. Wouldn't that be great? Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Woodland Presbyterian Church, maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. Again, if you'd like to learn more about our congregation, please visit us at woodlandpres.org. Thank you very much, and God bless you today.